0: You find yourself looking at your house. You see blue waters, you see your friends and family, you see all your favorite things, favorite locations, every person you admire and dislike, every animal, living being that is and ever was, the biggest events you witnessed, and all of human history contained in a single blue dot. You are looking into the starry night and gazing upon Earth. You're on Mars, and you are the first human to land upon the planet. But before we get there, It will take a mission to Mars. This is the Engineering IRL Podcast, a place for engineers in the real world. We try to break down engineering concepts and figure out how to apply them to real life. Let's become better problem solvers, better engineers. This is your host, Andrew Sario. Let's begin. Just before we dive right into it, now, this is really cool. I am proud to introduce our sponsor and I hope you'll check them out. All the relevant links will be in the show notes and on the engineering IRL website. Today's episode is brought to you by 3dhubs.com. 3 3D dhubs enables engineers like you and me, the ability to get your parts into production in less than five minutes. Get access to 3D printing, CNC machining, sheet metal, injection molding, and more for either prototyping or production. The interface is so simple. You can even drag and drop your own CAD files straight onto the website and get an instant quote. It's that easy. Now, have you ever wanted to see what your own idea or invention could look like? Maybe you don't know where to start, but luckily, 3D Hubs is offering our listeners of the show a free PDF sample of the first two chapters of the number one best-selling 3D printing handbook. Just visit www.3dhubs.com forward slash podcast forward slash engineering IRL. That's 3dhubs.com forward slash podcast forward slash engineering IRL to get access today. Hello everyone and welcome to the Engineering IRL podcast for engineeringinreallife.com. This is revision 37 of the show and today we will be breaking down the mission to Mars. This means the engineering involved, why we should go versus fixing things here, SpaceX and NASA's approaches and of course your IRL lessons. So imagine this, you arrive at your spaceport and you look up at a 40 story tall craft you check in your stuff and you get in your spacesuit, you board the ship and are in your seat, lying on your back, faced towards the sky. A literal explosion underneath goes off. Millions of horsepower going off like thousands of the most powerful cars combined as the entire craft shakes and rattles. You have to push your lungs forward through the drag of the atmosphere. <sighs> Crushed into your chair, you're like a leaf in a hurricane. The reason is one half rho V squared S. 16 times the speed of sound as you accelerate harder and harder. That light blue Florida sky starts to get darker and darker. And then suddenly, black. And the engines shut off, and you're weightless. Well, that was NASA astronaut Chris Hadfield describing the experience in his masterclass. And what's crazy about that is this might be the same experience for billionaire Yusaku Maizawa as he makes his way to the moon on SpaceX's reusable rockets. Uh, he'll be aboard the first manned mission of their starship, which will be the same that goes to Mars. He basically signed up for it. Elon Musk's already like announced it um, and he's going to be uh, the first. Regardless of his money though, uh, flying economy, business, first class, you can't escape that experience. This is due in part uh, to the calculations behind achieving escape velocity and the rocket equation. So consider the force of gravity keeps you grounded. You would need a certain amount of force to counteract that and then escape Earth's gravity. It turns out that this is a whole bunch and you need enough thrust to achieve around 11.2 kilometers per second. And how do you get that thrust? Well, you have to burn some fuel. That explosion we mentioned earlier? Yeah, that. Uh, And you have to do that for some time to firstly achieve that speed and then maintain it. Now, consider as you burn fuel, the weight of the rocket itself is reducing as well. So then you need to work out how much fuel you need to get to space for the weight that you're actually bringing up. If you want to send a human, then that costs more fuel because that's more weight. And if you want to bring luggage, well, it increases again. This is the basic purpose of the rocket equation to determine if you can get to space. Anyways, this just gets you to space, right? This doesn't solve the whole picture at all. It's like the first voyages, um, as our ancestors have always done, going out to sail to other countries. But all you figured out is the calculation for buoyancy needed to float and bring people and luggage. If you've only got that equation, I mean, you haven't figured out exactly where you're going yet, what you're going to bring, what is needed to survive the voyage itself, what to bring to survive in the new location versus what you're just going to build there. What to eat and drink, how to go back, how will a settlement be established, what you'll drink and eat there. And for Mars, I mean, there's still problems to solve, but we can do it. It's not rocket science. Well, except for that it is, and it goes beyond that. Speaking of rocket science, let me just clarify real quick that in the early days of NASA, they primarily had uh, rocket engineers and scientists. And the category used to refer to this collection of people and what they were actually working on for NASA was rocket science. Hence the term. There is no actual like rocket science. Oh, fun fact. So do you know uh, Jack Black? Yeah, Nacho Libre, School of Rock, best song in the world, Jumanji, comedic actor and musician Jack Black, that one. Both of his parents were actually aerospace engineers. Anyway, so, the question might be now, well, how have we gone so far with the missions to Mars? We already have the rover, don't we? Well, a quick bit of history, there's been at the time of this recording about 44 missions to Mars total with only about 30% or so being successful, so less than like 15 missions. In other words, if you kept these odds and just added humans to those, the first two missions would basically be suicide missions. So engineers need to work hard to have the systems in place and design appropriately to make this as safe as possible. We'll approach the technical engineering aspects in two major steps. Okay, First is the engineering to get there, and the second is the engineering to stay there. So for getting there we have to talk about the rocket itself, ground control but with a lens on the engineering more so than the science of it. So let's start with the systems on board and the systems of ground control. As the Mars mission is ultimately establishing a city on the red planet, the ground control has to change from being simply a launch complex to a spaceport that can handle different kinds of spacecraft and rockets and, you know, have them go at a rate that's more than ever before. It's not about a singular launch, it's about multiple. Like uh, the NASA's SLS for the Artemis 1 program. I'll touch on the Artemis 1 program a little later, but... The ground systems in mission control is used for monitoring and control of the spacecraft. The job is to sample the telemetry stream, so that means monitoring to make sure things are going well, then collecting data and uh, doing navigation calcs and then sending commands back to the ship. Yes, this is the same for manned and unmanned missions. You can imagine as uh, from what they show in the movies there is numerous seats screens and controls with newer launches like what you can see on the spacex live streams of their launches the mission control has like modern computer systems and many screens as well as large tv wall it's essentially the same kind of stuff just with newer tech all of those scientists operators engineers you see in those rooms are there for supporting the mission itself from the perspective of power propulsion Attitude Control System, which takes care of the orientation of the spacecraft. They would have custom-made applications, alarm screens, diagnostic information and more. Uh, this would include the controllers as well as computers and all tied together with their communications network. There's also all the engineering around the technology and processes to get the rockets to the launch pad, the safety systems to be sure to have like safe shutdown sequences in case of a failure, a deluge system and communication systems. Huh. Who would have thought that there was this much going on at ground control? I mean, it kind of makes sense given that for safety reasons, you want everybody at a safe distance away who's working on it. But most people look at the tech that goes into the rocket. And I get it. I mean, how can you not focus on the rocket? Uh, a couple of years back, I was at a Falcon 9 launch in uh, Cape Canaveral. And even at a distance of we're about like six kilometers away, you could feel the energy from the launch. It felt like the whole area was shaking. It was sick to say the least, but it was certainly a tick off my bucket list. And uh, speaking of the rocket, there are several limitations that must go into the design. It must be aerodynamic and light, of course, for maximum efficiency. And if you remember at the beginning of the episode, we touched on the rocket equation. Every bit of mass increases the cost of the mission due to the extra fuel. You want as much of the weight as possible to go to the payload. You know, Important stuff. But it also must be strong enough to handle the stresses and strain of a rocket launch itself and to safely hold all the propellant. Shielding for radiation must be considered, how oxygen is provided, and pressurization of the cabin. You must design for space, zero gravity. I mean, everything in there will float, even the water you drink. Uh, The onboard systems must give a pilot all the tools needed to navigate and fly when in atmosphere, and then all the tools they need to navigate and fly through space. The environments are vastly different. you got electrical systems, solar panels, and the ability for maintenance, spacewalks, and more. For manned missions specifically, we must consider the space ability for exercise and waste management. If I were to think of the most similar thing here on Earth, it must be submarines. The real interesting part comes to when we get there. A lot of engineering on both NASA and SpaceX comes to landing the spacecraft how it could relaunch, and more importantly, how to establish a base on Mars. The big players, NASA and SpaceX, along with all the other space-related companies must work hard to engineer final solutions for food, water, oxygen, shelter, electricity, communications, health, and safety. That's literally a planet-sized job. One angle of establishing a base on Mars is an ambitious one from Elon Musk himself. He tweeted just a week back that, uh, you know, he had a whole bunch of tweets outlining that he wants to send a million humans to Mars by 2050. That is what he thinks is really established city on Mars. But think about that number. One million humans. For those numbers to work, he and SpaceX will need to be launching three Starship rockets per day. You know, right now you've got like this big announcement, all these schedules, all these timing windows. Even if you uh, plan to go and see a rocket launch, you're not guaranteed until that day that it's going to go. Right? And they want to do three a day. When with goals for achieving manned missions to Mars by 2024, you know, for Musk, when asked by people, what about going to the moon? He's basically said, we can definitely stop by. NASA's approach is a little more uh, conservative, I'd say, with focus on establishing a lunar outpost first. A base on the moon and using the data, science and engineering to do this would give so much lessons learned for establishing a colony on Mars. They'll use the SLS rocket, which stands for our Space Launch System, and Orion, which is designed by them to keep humans alive hundreds of thousands of kilometers away from Earth. This is what project Artemis is. Now you might think, don't we have the International Space Station for this type of stuff? I mean, yeah, we established a base there and it has taught us a lot about surviving in space. But The moon is about a thousand times farther, which means the systems needed to survive reliably at further distances needs to be created. For them the plan is 2030, as opposed to Musk's 2024, and this year's 2020 Mars rover would support the human mission. Now another cool thing that NASA did was set up tickets to have your name inscribed onto a microchip on the Mars rover that's going up this year to be blasted into space and all the way on Mars. Now this was a super cool idea, and I signed up, got my whole family tickets, so once the rover lands on Mars I can point up to the sky at that red shiny celestial body and tell my son our names are up there now wouldn't that be something? Coming back to the Mars timeline, we're talking at least four to ten years before manned missions are a possibility. So between now and then, you'll start to see more and more announcements ramping up regarding innovations and steps made toward Mars. So this year, one thing you can see SpaceX working on is the welding techniques they use, uh, the materials of the Starship, particularly with its extensive use of stainless steel. Right now, as we speak, They have rigorous testing going on for the performance of the starship and they're stress testing it, you know, running it to its limits and breaking stuff, which does make for some spectacular explosion footage. At NASA, one thing that they're working on is the radiation shielding. And this is one of those things that the ISS does not need to face as much because like it's under the protective magnetosphere of the earth, right? Like it's not that far up. So in space, you can't have access to that, that protection. So how do we protect our humans from radiation? Well, the main answer is mass. Forget the material for for a moment. Like, even if something is metal, if it's thin, it doesn't provide much protection. Whereas a block of concrete, for example, would be good. But again, as we said earlier, we can't be wasting that mass carrying shielding because of the limitations on the weight of the objects relative to the size and the cost of the ship. Conspiracy theorists will use this as evidence that it is not even possible for humans to travel into space for longer periods of time because they can't even survive it. But in reality, for us engineers, it's just another problem to solve. I mean, it's true that humans can't survive underwater, right? Because of the drowning and all. Yet we have submarines with real humans living on them for extended periods of time. Okay, that's not the best example, but the point is, it's about looking at it from an engineering lens and finding solutions. Some solutions will only be possible as technology develops. But here's two parts of the equation that NASA is working on to address this. So the first is space weather monitoring. They have dedicated teams watching the space weather. You might think, wait a minute, there's no atmosphere in space. What do you mean weather? I'm talking about the solar winds kind of. The sun's behaviors and sending radiation out as it has minor tantrums once in a while. Astronauts need to know something may happen so that they can act. But what action can they take? Well, this is the second part of the equation NASA is designing. Everything on board that they're designing, they're doing it so that it is is multi-purpose. So for example, the astronauts on board can build temporary shields from what they already have on board. Remember, they don't always need this configuration, it is only for handling like increased radiation. For normal situations, the existing shielding should suffice. The fact is, we aren't talking about exposure to radiation itself, it's, it's the amount of time Anyways, when they get to the moon or Mars, the idea is to use the lunar or Martian surface materials, like the soil, and put them on top of the structures or habitats that they build to provide the shielding, rather than taking this material on the voyage. Again, you can't have empty mass. JPL, which is Jet Propulsion Labs, they're working on creating oxygen on Mars. The idea is to make oxygen from Mars' atmosphere. They say it's a unit called a Solid Oxide Electrolysis Unit is basically a fuel cell in reverse okay you can look that one up i mean we won't have time to break that one down in this episode i know i know look at this point you can see there is still a lot to consider and design solutions to be tested and finalized this one episode will not cover all the engineering and is only scratching the surface there's still so much to do but then the question becomes why should we go there and shouldn't we fix things here on earth first before we ruin another planet The reason humans should go to Mars is because we're human. I mean, we are an exploring species. It's what's made us the dominant species on this planet. If we only lived in one little plot of land on Earth, we never went anywhere, I would say, let's explore. I need a good reason to cross this ocean. Well, because we haven't done it before. How's that for a good reason? We might learn something tomorrow that we don't know today. That was Peter Diamandis, Chairman and CEO of XPRIZE Foundation, and Neil deGrasse Tyson, Director at Hayden Planetarium, and probably the most famous physicist today. Uh, that video has a bunch of prominent people in it um, that are talking about, you know, why we should go to Mars. But really, to summarize it, we are humans. It's in our genes to explore. It's a challenge. It's an opportunity to un- to unite us and to learn the possibility of finding life. Super inspiring, right? For Elon Musk, aside from it being inspiring, he talks about the preservation of the species. I mean, we need to develop the technology that enables us to become a multi-planet species to increase the odds of survival in the future. Now, there is other technology that can accelerate this that is not being developed for Mars specifically. Artificial Intelligence Should AI and the use of bots be used to set up a base first? I mean, it's definitely another angle and it is safer than sending humans, right? So who said intelligence in space has to be biological humans? We could send 3D printing equipment and build remotely as we safely make designs on Earth, send them to Mars for print and then have AI bots install them. It's certainly a good option and is the way of the future even here on this planet. You know, as engineers, you should be compelled to at least have an understanding of designing something like in your head and making use of 3D printing technologies. Try build or design something yourself and print it. If you don't have a printer, no problems. Just go to a 3D printing service such as our sponsor 3D Hubs. Imagine this scenario. There's a tool that you need to get you out of a tricky situation. You're literally in the middle of nowhere in space or on Mars. Someone on Earth designs something to help and they email you a new spanner like tool that you print. Boom, you wirelessly sent a tool across space and it's already possible. NASA has held competitions already where they get kids to design tools and the winner gets their one sent to space for printing by the scientists on board the International Space Station. Talk about inspiring the next generation of young engineers. Now, it wouldn't be this show without some IRL lessons. The first thing is you can't only find your rocket equation if you want to become interplanetary. That's to say, you can't just decide you need to save $12,000 and calculate you need to save 1000 a month. That's the equation. Now, how are you going to save it? How are you going to survive the next 12 months not using that money? Well, you need a budget. When you get to the 12000 then what will you do with it? What are the roadblocks, limitations? A goal or a principle can be a good guide or first step, but you need a real plan for there to be any execution. Next is, it takes a team to achieve something great. In this case, it will take humanity to achieve the greatest feats of known consciousness. I was talking on the DMs to current NASA astronaut Johnny Kim, who's previously a Harvard-trained doctor and before that, a US Navy lieutenant, a Navy SEAL. What a resume, right? You might consider him as an example of success. I asked him about his success and he said that he couldn't have made it where he was on his own and that he had a lot of support and help from teachers, mentors, friends and family. Let that sink in for a moment. Mars in our lifetime. Our kids could be the generation that existed only knowing we've already been to Mars. A second giant leap for man, a gianter leap for mankind. All right, whoever lands there first can work on the catchphrase, right? But who knows, in your lifetime, you, using future social media, you could literally be chatting to a Martian or virtually meeting one. Your family could be a Martian and you visit for Christmas and be amused by their Martian accent. Their star signs are all messed up since there will be an Earth sign, you know, Earth retrograde. And they realize as they're leaving, you know, as they leave to visit Earth for the first time, looking back at Mars, this pale red dot, that we are all one on the same boat in the sea that is the universe. With that being said, thanks for listening to this episode. Remember to please subscribe and share the podcast. It helps us out tremendously and allows me to make more episodes. Shoutouts to our sponsor, 3dhubs.com. And you can find all related links and information in the show notes for this episode or on our website. Uh, Any requests or questions, just email or DM us on any of our socials. And we're going to be running a giveaway on Instagram. So make sure you follow us at Life one word so you don't miss